Is Messianic Judaism compatible with Protestant Christianity? We'll be discussing that with an evangelical pastor on today's show. Messiah Podcast is where Jesus is Jewish, and that changes everything. This show is brought to you by Messiah Magazine, a free publication available in print or online at messiahmagazine.org. Put your hand in mine together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher. Rabbi from the Galilee. Welcome to Messiah, a podcast of First Fruits of Zion that discusses the teachings and kingdom message of Jesus from a Messianic Jewish perspective. My name is Ryan, and I'm joined by my co-host Reuben. Hey, Reuben, how you doing today? Hey, I'm doing all right. I'm glad to be here. Good. I'm I'm excited. This is a big day. We are pumped up about this new podcast, and so I want to get started by introducing ourselves to our audience. So just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for First Fruits of Zion. Yeah, sure thing. So I was actually born and raised in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. I guess sometime after Hurricane Katrina, we we decided as a family, um, we wanted to move. We didn't want to experience Katrina or yeah, hurricanes that. like that. Right. And so my family and I moved to, to Nashville, Tennessee, where we've been now with our four kids and two cats for about eight years. And my background is actually in sales and customer relations and marketing, and now I have the privilege to serve First Fruits Design as Director of Communications. Yeah, and it's been great to have you on our team. Uh, you've been doing a great job with sharpening up our communications and how we present our materials. So it's uh, you've had a high impact in a short amount of time. So it's been good to good to have you on the team. We're excited about uh, what's ahead yeah. too. So yeah, a little bit about me too. So I uh, have been on staff with First Street Design for a while, since 2015, came on as our director of outreach. And then when Torah Club, the new Torah Club, um, you know, started uh, several years ago, I became uh, temporarily the director of Torah Club. Uh, and what a, what a great ride uh, that was. But as we've grown and as our staff has increased, my role has has thankfully been able to like zero back in on an outreach focus. So now I'm the director of outreach with specifically focused on Torah Club. Uh, and so that's been uh, been really good. I live in the peach state of Georgia here in the <laughs> United States and uh, live in uh, live in the Atlanta area and lead a Messianic congregation called Tikvat David Messianic Synagogue uh, in Roswell, Georgia. And so I'm a pretty busy guy, like most of our uh, FVZ team. We all uh, right. we all have that's a right. lot going on, but uh, grateful, and of course, live here with my family, and uh, just uh, glad uh, glad we can be together. Yeah, awesome. So with introductions out of the way. Let's talk about why we're doing this and what people can expect on Messiah. Yeah, so we like to, part of our culture at FFOZ is we like to start with why based on that book with that title, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Uh, it's, it's always good to say, all right, why, why, why are we doing this? I mean, we've yeah. got so many things we, we want to do and we're very, as, as you know, very uh, uh, innovative team and always got something cooking, but you always want to say, wait, what, what, what's, what are we doing this for? Okay, so, so as far as, this podcast, we're doing it because uh, it's actually an extension of the new uh, Messiah magazine. We, we recently did a, a, a reboot. And I'm sure many of our listeners received uh, the uh, the new Messiah magazine, which, of course, is available for free. You can go to messiahmagazine.org uh, and sign up for a free subscription. It's really an awesome magazine. But uh, we recently did a reboot on that in which we gave it a new look, 
featuring new, exciting, edgy articles uh, on modern topics which relate to Messianic Jewish teaching. And so Messiah Podcast is going to be similar in the sense that we're going to be discussing topics and featuring guests who are innovative and pushing out ideas that relate to our work at First Fruits of Zion, which is really all about providing Messianic Jewish teaching for Christians and Jews. So we're going to feature a broad range of thinkers and leaders who are doing creative things. So that'll be scholars, pastors, Messianic rabbis, and others who are really just doing significant work in areas that relate to a Messianic Jewish reading of the Bible. So uh, we are looking forward uh, to, to this uh, this new podcast. And Absolutely. I guess uh, we're ready. We're ready for the first discussion with uh, our first guest, whose name is Jacob Franzak. So Jacob is an evangelical pastor who recently wrote a book titled Rethinking the Five Sole. Uh, and so you may be wondering already, what in the world are the five sole? Well, we're going to explain <laughs> that. That's why we got Jacob on here, because it's actually really important. Uh, and so, it, but the title of the book is Rethinking the Five Sole. And then check out this subtitle, Why Messianic Judaism is Incompatible with the Five Foundations of Protestantism. So talk about, you know, I used the word edgy a few minutes ago. That is an edgy title. It's going to be an edgy discussion. And uh, this is a, a provocative statement. So we're looking forward to this discussion with Jacob Franzak. If you want to know the Jewish Jesus, don't miss out on a free subscription to Messiah Magazine, where you'll discover his life and teaching, learn about the biblical festivals, and get connected with Israel. Subscribe for free at messiahmagazine.org. Messiah Magazine is a free, donation-supported quarterly publication of First Fruits of Zion. So today our guest is Jacob Franzak, who is an evangelical pastor, writer, and Jacob also serves as a writer for First Fruits of Zion. So Jacob's written several books, including uh, some titles that will be familiar to uh, to some of our audience. Jacob wrote the book Yeshua Matters and also Israel Matters, and uh, I, these are these are excellent excellent introductions for understanding both Jesus and Israel from a Messianic Jewish perspective. Actually, I keep copies of these both of these books. Uh, at my synagogue in Atlanta to give to people who are who are new to the to the messianic movement or to messianic teaching and they really do an excellent job of of explaining things in a very accessible accessible way but with some depth to it as well so both of these books Yeshua matters and Israel matters can be found on the first fruits of Zion web store at ffoz.com so hey Jacob good to see you today man and have you as the first guest on this new podcast Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Jacob, let's get started. We're, we're going to get into some uh, into the contents of the of, of the book, uh, and really want to talk about this uh, this edgy title uh, here that you have. But uh, I want to get started by um, uh, having you share just a little bit of your story about how you, as an evangelical pastor, became linked up with First Fruits of Zion. Oh, wow. Well. Uh, <laughs> I guess it all started when I was finishing up my undergrad at Liberty. So okay. This, this would have been like back in 2005, maybe 2006. Um, uh, so, you know, by that time I'd had 14 or 15 years of formal Christian education right, from first grade through high school and then, and then uh, college. 
But I was really starting to question the uh, sort of relativization of the Old Testament. Like, it's not really important. Don't worry about it. Uh, Jesus canceled all of the laws that, from back then. And, you know, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, so what ended up happening is my family, I was still living with my parents at the time, we joined a little church here in southern Michigan that was meeting on the Sabbath, and they did a Passover Seder every year, um, and so forth. And the pastor there gave me a copy of Restoration, and that was the first oh, contact okay. I had with um, with First Fruits of Zion. So then, like, I don't know, two or three years later, I got married, and then the next year, this would have been 09, uh, my wife and I went to a big Sukkot shindig down in Tennessee, mm-hmm. okay. and um, they brought speakers from all over, and Boaz was one of the speakers. Okay. And um, I didn't agree with his talk. Because, well, I was really, at the time, I was really sort of stuck in, I guess what I would call like a sola scriptura mentality. And at the time, First Fruits was making this pivot toward a more Jewish reading of the scripture. Um, So I came up to him afterwards to talk to him, to tell him I didn't like his talk. But um, I didn't I didn't get that far because he was such a nice guy. And we ended up talking about something else. And by the end, I was sort of nodding my head. And um, so later on... I started a blog and there was still some controversy around this pivot that First Fruits Design had made. And I went to bat for First Fruits. I'm like, no, I think these guys are right. Um, and I sort of tried to explain why in different blog posts and stuff. And someone uh, must have seen them because I got an email asking if I wanted to um, to write for the organization. So that's how I got hooked up with uh, First Fruits. Right, right. Wow, that's a great, that's a great. Chance. It's, it's interesting to you to hear how the book Restoration uh, was uh, by Daniel Lancaster, which is, yeah. you know, one of the one of our our, our main you know books. Uh, how that had an impact on you. So that's good to hear. Yeah, that is definitely a familiar story. I mean, that was kind of uh, a little bit how I got uh, connected with First Roots as well. But you know, Jacob, what really struck me about your new book, Rethinking the Five Sole, was actually the subtitle. Uh, why Messianic Judaism is incompatible with the five foundations of Protestantism. And it's it's quite a statement like Ryan mentioned before, but before we move on any further, I'm sure there's folks listening that are maybe not familiar with the five sole. Actually, uh, in, in full transparency, before reading your book, uh, I did not know what the five sole were either. Uh, just, you know, I'm not a seminarian, not a theologian in that way. And so uh, before we get started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the five sole? What are they? Uh, sure. Well, the five sole are sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and soli deo gloria. And those are all Latin, but they just mean, um, well, sola scriptura means that doctrine and practice can only come from the Bible. So you have to be able to back up everything you believe and do directly from like a Bible verse. Um, sola fide may, uh, means we're saved through faith alone. Um, which rules out works in the context of salvation. So like the, the things we do don't really matter for our salvation. Um, they do matter in some sense, but they don't have anything to do with whether we're saved or not. Um, sola gratia means we're saved by grace alone. Uh, again, ruling out works or uh, from, a, from a Lutheran original, like Martin Luther perspective, probably sacraments and, and stuff like that. Solus Christus means that uh, Yeshua is the only mediator between God and man, again, ruling out priests and saints and so forth. And um, Soli Deo Gloria means God alone is deserving of glory. Again, sort of push back against 
the uh, statues of, of saints and, and Mary and these other things that you see in the, in the Catholic Church. And by the way, um, as ideas in themselves, my book doesn't say that all of these are wrong. Actually, like more than half of them are right. So I'm not coming out and saying, get rid of all the five uh, sole. Lots of people deserve glory, just like God. That's not where the book is going, um, just in case anyone is worried about that. Um, but anyway, to clarify, like you can't, you don't find this list of five going all the way back to the time of the Reformation. They had a, like fewer sole back then. Um, this particular formulation is newer. But I think that they are a pretty good representation of like the priorities of the reformers and um, sort of what they thought. Now, this is what they are. But I think another important um, idea or another important question is what are the five solely designed to do? And the answer is they define Protestantism like in contrast to other options like Catholicism or Judaism. They aren't like comprehensive, like the Trinity is not in there. Like the divinity of Jesus isn't in there. Like other things, Protestants have to believe um, the five solely, but they aren't meant to encompass like all of Protestant theology. They're designed to differentiate Protestantism from other faiths that worship the same God, particularly Catholicism. Um, and I think that's critical to understanding why I think we need to take another look at them. Yeah, no, that's 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 a good. Uh, that was a good. Uh succinct uh, explanation of, of the five sole. And hey, Ruben, like you, I, if, if, if I'd had a, a test before reading this book, I mean, I've heard of all these, but I don't know that I could have <laughs> listed them all out. So uh, no worries, brother, uh, about, about uh, not being familiar with all these. Say, so, hey, Jacob, I want to kind of just get to the heart of like, what, uh, what inspired you to, to write this book? I mean, why why take on such a monumental topic like Luther and the founding fathers and, you know, prince in these fundamental principles of Protestantism? What, yeah, uh, what was what, I thinking? What, you? what were you thinking, <laughs> man? Um, well, I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't mean to, honestly, like, um, I didn't start out with a plan of writing this book or a book like this. Um, you know, one day I was like sitting at my desk and I was working in a little church in Southern Michigan and I was in seminary. And I'd been wrestling, I guess, with sort of the idea of what it means to be part of Messianic Judaism as a Gentile. And I sort of realized that I'd always been trying to shoehorn like Protestantism. So I'd been a Protestant my whole life and I was trying to shoehorn all of those beliefs into a Jewish context and just make them fit. And it hit me all at once that I wasn't going to be able to do that. And after I realized that, I was able to start looking at these ideas with a little bit more of a critical eye, like almost more like an outsider, you know, like that's hard to do. It's hard to question what you grew up with or to see it from a different perspective. There's a mental barrier there that you have to overcome. It takes first. a lot of courage too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it really maybe. does. So I, kudos to you. Um, it took courage to tell anyone else about it. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, the dam broke like that day. And I wrote mm. the same day, I wrote like 4,000 words about Sola Scriptura and just posted it to Facebook. Like you, this is back when you could post like big, long, I don't know. I think they're called notes or something. You could, you could post them right to Facebook. Um, later on, I started this blog that I mentioned earlier. Um, I'm not going to advertise it because it's defunct now. I haven't put anything out there in I don't know, 10 years. <laughs> I, I ran out of time in the day, but I sure. put the same article out there again, just to see how people would react to it. Cause I had a few people who were reading and, and sort of commenting and someone at first roots must've seen it. Cause they asked if, uh, if I wanted to put it in Messiah journal. And pretty soon after that, um, 
I think it was actually at a creative team meeting that I had somehow got invited to. I thought, well, what if I did an article about each one of these? Like I could mm -hmm. do an article about each of the five soli, look at each of them in a Jewish context, see if they fit in a Jewish context. Um, so I did that for, next, for the next couple of years, I wrote an article every quarter. And then, you know, several years later, someone thought, hey, that might be an interesting book. And here it is. All right. And we're holding it in our hands. Now, I want to ask you uh, about a what I think is a very provocative statement you made in this book. Uh, you said that you see the five sole themselves as the root of Protestant anti-Semitism. That is a jolting statement. So tell us what you mean by that. Yeah. So to put that statement in context, uh, let's talk a little bit about Martin Luther himself. Okay. So it's, no, it's not a secret that Martin Luther, especially toward the end of his life, just hated Jews. Right. Like he wrote this famous pamphlet on the Jews and their lies, I think it was called. Yeah. And he talks about like burning down their synagogues, like burning down their homes. And, and just it's real graphic, real hateful. And he just goes on and on like this. Like it's hard to overstate how much Luther wanted to get rid of the Jews. And, you know, most Protestants today do not share those views. I mean, most Protestants, they are not anti-Semitic. So when we say Protestant anti-Semitism, we mean when anti-Semitism crops up in that context. And it's not an indictment of, of Protestantism or, or of Protestants in general. We're yeah, talking about yeah. when, it do, when it does happen. But anyway, the, because Protestants don't generally share those views, they're careful to separate Luther's hatred of Jews from his theology. It's like, no, those are two different things. There's no connection. He was a fantastic theologian who laid down some great foundations. And then he also, on a completely separate part of his brain, had some kind of mental illness or, or, or prejudice or, or, you know, this anti-Semitism had nothing to do with his theology. And one of the, the points I try to make in the book is I don't think that's completely true um, because mm. Protestant anti-Semitism outlived Luther. It wasn't just a, a personal problem that he had. Um, I wouldn't say at all that the five sole would lead someone inevitably to become like an anti-Semite. Right. Um, but in particular, Sola Scriptura is so antithetical to a Jewish understanding of faith that it really sets up Judaism along with Catholicism as the other, like that's forbidden territory, right? And so the more fervently you believe that it's like not just wrong, but like bad and heretical and dangerous to get ideas about God or about religious practice from like any other process than sola scriptura, like directly from the Bible, the, the, the more closely you hold to that, the more distant and the more strange and even offensive Judaism becomes. Like it mm. starts to look like a competitor or an enemy rather than a, like a, a legitimate expression of faith. So the door to anti-Semitism is, is opened wider. Now, European anti-Semitism was not just a Protestant thing, had deep roots, religious roots, cultural roots that date well back, you know, before the Reformation. But Protestant theology's influence on that anti-Semitic culture was a factor. I think I can go that far. Like that's about how far I would go. And if you read a lot of literature on Jewish Christian relations, that's not like a particularly controversial um, statement. Torah Club is the world's fastest growing Messianic Jewish Bible study. You can start or join a club today at torahclub.org. 
Know Jesus better through an in-depth small group Bible study and fellowship with other like-minded disciples. Start a club or join a club at TorahClub.org. Torah Club is where disciples learn. A lot of us who are in the Messianic movement uh, have a Protestant background. Um, probably not all of us, um, but I would say most of the people that I meet do have a, a Protestant leaning. And you said something earlier about shoehorning uh, Protestantism into Messianic Judaism. And I think Sola Scriptura is um, one of those things that that we kind of naturally do. I think it's safe to say that most Christians uh, feel safer uh, if a, a Bible verse um, is directly supporting their their actions or beliefs and and uh, anything other than that is a little foreign territory, a little uncomfortable. But um, could you tell us a little bit more about Sola Scriptura? Like, how do you see it as as particularly problematic? Well, uh, Sola Scriptura is the most interesting, first of all, the five sole. And the reason that um, it's probably good to focus on it first is because it's qualitatively different like it's functionally different from the other four. So it answers a different question. The other four sole answer the question of like, what are some things that Protestants believe that supposedly set them apart from other faiths? Um, right, they're the destination. Sola Scriptura is the starting point. It answers the question, how do we know or how do we find out what we're supposed to believe? Now, if I wanted to be real cynical, I could say, that if sola scriptura works the way it's supposed to, you wouldn't need the other four, right? Like if mm. you, we do don't you need, you That's don't need, you don't need yeah. to say like, if you do theology this way, you will arrive at the right conclusions. And here are the conclusions that you also must believe in the same list as sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia. Like if these desirable conclusions, these destinations for a Protestant theology were already baked into sola scriptura, you wouldn't need to say them because you'd be already confident that you'd be arriving at those conclusions because you started with the right methodology. So this is sort of a tacit admission, like we already know, because we have to say also besides Sola Scriptura, here are four other things you only have. Um, we know that we need more direction than, uh, than just Sola Scriptura. Um, and the, you know, it's key to realize that even the perk whoever made that list knows that you can start with Sola Scriptura and arrive at a different destination. So you need more clarification. And I think my own journey is actually a really good example of that. And I know this process has played out like in similar ways in the lives of a lot of people who are now part of the Messianic Jewish movement, because most of us started out with Sola Scriptura. Like that's just in the DNA of the movement. That's because of where it came from. And because of that, I mean, maybe this resonates with you guys, but, but, we had such a deep respect for scripture mm -hmm. that it became hard for us to believe that Jesus in the New Testament could nullify anything in the Old Testament because it, it was scripture. You know, it was, it was the scriptura we were supposed to be getting all of our information from. And it, all of a sudden, Yeshua didn't make as much sense to us because he's He's not doing solo scripture, you know, he's, he's like sure. taking some, some of these scriptures and throwing them in the trash can, you know? So right. be, once we started seeing um, Yeshua in, in a new context, once we decided he wasn't getting rid of the Old Testament, um, we started looking for other explanations of these New Testament texts. That's how I got to Passover. That's how I got to celebrating the feasts. That's how I got to 
any kind of dietary laws. You know, three out of the four directives for Gentile followers of Yeshua in Acts 15 have to do with food. And most, most Christians would say they don't have any dietary laws. But this, so starting from Sola Scriptura is how a lot of people came into Messianic Judaism. Like that was their pathway. I think the difference with what I wrote in the book here is I've gone a little bit further. Like what I realized on that day in my office when I wrote the first article, which is now the first chapter of the book, was that Sola Scriptura is not in the Bible. There's, no, there's not a Bible verse for it. So if the Bible is your sole authority for faith and practice, sola, sola scriptura, you don't get anything else. So everything you believe needs to come directly from the Bible. Well, the next thing you have to do is you have to get rid of sola scriptura because it's not in the Bible. So it rules, <laughs> it rules, itself, uh, rules itself out. It's a bit of a meta problem. It is a meta problem. Um, but it set me on a good path because the next thing I saw, as I was still, I didn't have like another source. I still just had Scriptura, but I didn't have Sola Scriptura anymore. So I was, you know, thanks to Boaz and the rest of the guys at First Fruits of Zion and all the stuff that they were writing and putting out and teaching, I realized that the Bible points to other sources, like in Deuteronomy 17, you know, obey the decisions of the court in Jerusalem. Um, these decisions are not in the Bible. We don't know what they are from the Bible. We have to find what what decisions these courts came to somewhere else. What did the these court, the court in Jerusalem? What did they decide was work on the Sabbath? Because it could be a fine line. You don't want to break the 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 decision of the court because Deuteronomy seventeen says that it's binding. Matthew twenty three. Jacob, I just want to ask a question. I mean, do you, is it fair to say that even for the most committed uh, you know, the people who are most committed to the idea of soul scripture, the most committed Protestants you can find. Is it fair to say that nobody actually lives according to sola scriptura? Because I'm, I'm just thinking <laughs> of examples of, you know, I would think that everyone who in, in principle embraces sola scriptura uh, probably also embraces the concept of baptism. But when we think about baptism, you know, we, we, we see that concept in the New Testament and 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 in the in the Tanakh and the Old Testament as well but it doesn't lay out for us exactly how to do it do we baptize do you you know is it is it before is it as a child is it after salvation of course we get different traditions with that is it you know is it forward is it backwards is it in the name of the Father the Son and the Spirit in the name of the Son you know there's all these different I'm going to say, I'm going to use a Jewish word, uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, there's these different halachas, if you will, which, which you know, is a Jewish term that we use for how we walk things out. But I would say, you know, when it comes to baptism, pretty much every Christian tradition has a halakha. They have a tradition. They have a way of walking it out, but it's not spelled out in scripture. So how would you sort of, is, is, is what I'm saying correct in that nobody really does live according to Sola Scriptura? Well, you've hit on an important consequence of sola scriptura, yeah. which is that once you once you only have the written text of the scripture, yeah. without without further clarification from any kind of external source or tradition, you know, depending on how good your Greek is and how much context you have, the word can mean anything you want it to. It could be sprinkling or a pouring or a dunking, yeah. or a, a dunk tank 
or tossing someone in. <laughs> I mean, right? You know, um, without without the clarification that because we it's really the, the New Testament sort of seems to assume that you know what it, how to do it, right? It doesn't right. tell you. It doesn't tell you verse stand knee deep in water with the, uh, you know, and then backwards and say these words. All that stuff is. Uh, we don't find that in the New Testament. It's somewhere else. But clearly in Protestant churches, there are authoritative traditions and customs yeah. as to how one baptized and, and, and even, you know, you, you, you can't, uh, you know, you can't become a member of some of these, you know, of, of a church unless you embrace the, the, the particular, you know, differentiating idea about baptism. So this really, on a practical level, this this gets very important. Yeah, it does, and um, I think it's it's telling, right, that almost every church in the world that believes in sola scriptura is also going to have like a big long statement of faith. Yeah. So it's like sola scriptura, and if you did it right, you'll also believe these seventeen things. Right. Um, which which tells you that there's, you know, seventeen to the 17th power ways of, you know, of getting it wrong and everyone else is wrong. And, and this church is right. Yeah. Without, yeah. without clarification, direction, tradition, you get this repeated bifurcation. Mm -hmm. um, and each church would say, you know, they, they would, uh, they would say that they're doing sola scriptura because they have right. a Bible verse for everything. Um, but it gets difficult to justify, well, how come no one else came to that conclusion? How come only you did? Mm -hmm. Um, that ends up being more of a uh, an ecclesiological problem with sola scriptura, just how it fractures the church. Because any you know, the Bible sometimes is vague enough you can you can pull whatever you want to out of it. I want to press in a little more on what you just said because in your book you 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 note a a what I would say is a powerful and alarming trend uh, that there are you know of course innumerable divisions among Protestants and with. With Christianity really losing its influence in Western culture, uh, those divisions—I think I think you, you use the words—they're they're unsustainable. Um, and you noted that many Protestants are moving towards mega churches and unaffiliated churches in one direction, but also towards Orthodox and Catholic churches in a different direction. So, why is this happening, and what does this all have to do with the five sole? Yeah, so the five sole, like even if you have the five sole to guide you, you can end up in just a multitude of different places. Like even in the like in the early the earliest reformers, who do you think of? You think of Luther and probably Calvin. Mm -hmm. Well, you still have Calvinists today, but not everyone's a Calvinist. You still have Lutherans today, but not everybody's a Lutheran, and not all Calvinists are Lutherans. Like both of these, both of these guys, like philosophies, survive today in some form separate from each other. They didn't, if you have like, even when, even in the first days, they couldn't agree on like doing one thing. Yes. Yeah. Even with the, the same philosophy of sola scriptura, sola fide and so forth, they came to different conclusions. Um, so that's what happens when you, when you chuck all the tradition, which by the way, they didn't. Um, but when you chuck all the tradition <laughs> in the trash can, you can, you can, almost come up with whatever you want if you can if you can squeeze a bible verse to like prove it but today like especially younger people um i don't know if they're smarter or, or more cynical or just more careful but the idea that you know like one of 
12 independent churches within walking distance of their house uh, has it right and everyone else has it wrong. Um, it just seems less likely. Like it seems more likely that a worldwide church with hundreds of millions of members and thousands of years of history it might have a better, a better handle on things than one guy with a 50 person congregation somewhere. Like whatever conclusions Catholicism has come to, they've at least had a lot of time to think about it. And that's attractive to someone who maybe is a little disoriented or disenchanted with the so many people disagreeing about the Bible. Since I wrote the book, by the way, I think I would say that a lot of these unaffiliated or non-denominational churches have become more homogenous. Um, a lot, at least the successful ones have. Like if you find a successful church in my area here in, in lower Michigan, the pastor is probably going to be borrowing like sermon series, theology, methodology, organizational structure from Andy Stanley or Craig Groeschel or like the Gospel Coalition people, like some big, some larger movement, even if it's not an official thing, he's he's pulling from there, like that's his wellspring. And the churches that do this, uh, from what I can see, tend to be more successful. I think part of it is because the people that go there realize that they are part of a much larger movement. It may not be an official movement. It may not have a title. Like there are some North Point strategic partners, but there's multitudes more churches that just steal Andy Stanley's sermon mm -hmm. outlines and replace sure. <laughs> his anecdotes with the, their anecdotes. I, I've done it, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, absolutely, especially when I was first starting out. Um, but I think so. I think rather than the demise of the independent church, I think we might be looking at a sort of sifting process where the churches that survive are the ones that bring themselves to resemble a larger church somewhere or a larger movement. But I don't think this is sustainable either. Like this is this is all really recent. You know, North Point hasn't been around for that long. His hyper anti-Old Testamentism that he's gotten into, I don't think it's going to last that long because eventually people read the whole Bible and they're going to have questions that I'm not sure you can answer very well in that framework. Messianic Judaism has an opportunity here to build a theology that is just as rooted in any ancient tradition as any of the big liturgical denominations that trace their traditions back to the days of the apostles, and actually something even more biblical than I think any of the other options out there. And I think we need to take advantage of that and, and build a Messianic Jewish theology that's not just holding a mirror up to, to Protestantism or anything else specifically, but that's Messianic and it's Jewish and it will last. It can answer the hard questions. It makes sense of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And I mean, this is like a job that's fallen right into our laps. And I don't know who else is even equipped to start doing it other than Messianic Jews. And I think I think it's important for the, the broader body of faith. I mean, I think in the long, long, long view, Messianic Judaism is the future, or at least holds the keys to the future. But we need to build it up on a solid theological foundation. And I think that foundation has to be Jewish from its inception and not sort of borrowed from, from Protestantism. What I love about, about your book, Jacob, is that it kind of gets the ball rolling. Um, I think it, it begins to ask those questions and see things in a different way. Um, and obviously, just based on our discussion here, we can uh, talk about this forever. And I think there's going to be many more discussions about the five sole and the foundations of missing Judaism. Um, 
you know, I'm curious, can you give us a, a summary about um, you, you kind of talked throughout the book about the five soul and how it relates to Messianic Judaism. And I'm curious if you could give us a summary about how this interface works and, and you know, why do you say that the five sole and Messianic Judaism are incompatible? I think fun, on a fundamental level, you've got to look at the starting points. They have fundamentally different starting points or, or methodologies for building theology. And I think that Sola Scriptura is this way by, by design. Sola Scriptura eliminates any, any extra-biblical tradition as a source for doctrine and practice. Judaism mandates extra-biblical tradition. You know, you have the Torah that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and then you have the, the traditions of the elders. Um, they're not on the same level as the Torah. The, the rabbis weren't saying, look, our words are going to override the Torah, or our, even like we're going to add some stuff to the Torah. Their goal is to explain the Torah, which like we just talked about, sometimes needs explanation. Um, and Judaism recognizes that hierarchy. A Torah law is different than a rabbinic law, even if they're both mandatory. But um, the starting point, this methodology, you know, it's going to send you in a certain direction. Like if I, if I live out east somewhere and I decide I'm going to take a 90 west and I'm not going to take any exits, I'm going to end up in Chicago. Like there's not another place that I can go because that's where the highway is taking me. So if you start with the five sole, you're going to end up somewhere in Protestantism. Like that's what they're, that's where they're designed to take you. You're not going to end up in any kind of Judaism if you insist on holding on to Sola Scriptura, because it's going to rule out all of that uh, tradition. And the tradition is the source for a lot of what makes Judaism Jewish, what, what it looks like, how it thinks, you know, what the theology is. But if you start... And here's my contention, and this is what I wrote about in one of my other books, Yeshua Matters. But if you, if you start with the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, you know, Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah, if that's your starting point, he gives you the rest of the Bible because he talks about the Torah, the prophets, the writings, the whole Old Testament. You have the New Testament because that's where you learned about Yeshua for, uh, to begin with. And then the Bible points you in Deuteronomy 17 or Matthew 23, where Jesus talks about the scribes and the Pharisees and, and having to listen to what rulings they make as far as what, how to adjudicate the Torah. Um, you, you're, you're opened up. You, this whole ecosystem of Jewish thought opens up for you because the Bible points to it. The Bible tells you that this is where you need to look. And I think once you get there, the conclusion that God has revealed himself to the world, not just through the written word, but more generically through the Jewish people, the Jewish prophets, the Jewish Messiah. This is how we got the written word to begin with. So I would say that Yeshua leads us to Messianic Judaism. But in order to see that, at some point along the way, we, we probably started with Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura led us to Yeshua and to understand that the whole Bible matters, not just the New Testament. But at some point, we read Deuteronomy 17 and Matthew 23. Um, you know, even Jude references a couple of pseudepigraphal books. We find out there's a lot more out there. And we find out that the whole the whole ecosystem is Jewish. So we start with Yeshua, we start with the Messiah, we work from there, not with a preconceived framework of sola scriptura. And I think discarding that preconceived framework and just approaching Yeshua 
Even if it's not the conclusion the reformers came to, I think it's kind of a reformation idea. Jacob, this is great stuff, man. Um, this is, uh, I, I also appreciate in the book, I think your tone was, um, was respectful. I mean, you're speaking as an insider, you're speaking as an evangelical Protestant pastor, uh, but you're doing that respectfully and with, uh, in, in no way, I think, do you in any way seek to diminish the authority and beauty of scripture. Uh, you're just kind of just dealing with these issues and analyzing them in relation to Messianic Judaism. I thought you did a great job. So, hey, man, we appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, before we sign off, tell our listeners how they can get a copy of your book. I can go to the FFOZ web store, uh, FFOZ.com. Yep. Yep. FFOZ.com. They can find uh, this new book, Rethinking the Five Soli, as well as uh, some of your other books, Yeshua Matters and Israel Matters. Again, at FFOZ.com. So, hey, Jacob, again, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, good. it's always good to talk to you, Jacob. I'm sure we'll have many more conversations about Five Sole and other things that you're working on. Absolutely. Hey, Ruben, uh, pretty, pretty intense uh, interview, pretty bold, very bold book, edgy. Um, but, but, but we like that, but, uh, yeah, I, I really thought Jacob had some great things to say that sort of expanded. I, I like just kind of getting the personal story behind his, uh, his book as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of an enigma being a, a evangelical pastor, but also being deeply involved in, in the Messianic Jewish movement. And I actually see that as a, as a real positive thing and as the way forward. I mean, honestly, with Messianic Judaism, um, it's not really a call to, uh, to a lot of difference, but really questioning the way that we think and questioning the way that we interpret scripture is is uh, definitely important. Yeah. What, what would you say was a, was a key takeaway for you from, from the discussion with Jacob? Yeah. So honestly, I think it pointed out the sort of inconsistency that, um, that uh, Protestants have and, and, you know, my background being in Protestantism, for sure, I experienced, which is, uh, you know, we say, uh, we believe in the Sola Scriptura, which is, even though I didn't know all the five Sole, uh, was definitely one of them that I that I would say most Christians can relate to. Um, and yet it is a bit of an inconsistency because we read into Scripture um, a non-Sola Scriptura uh, viewpoint. Uh, we, we read into some of Jesus' sayings. I remember very distinctly hearing things about, um, well, actually Jesus was being kind of tongue-in-cheek there. Or he was being sarcastic there. And yet there are no indicators in the scripture outside of Protestant theology or outside of uh, Protestant interpretation that would hint to him being tongue in cheek or hint, hint to him being um, sarcastic. Um, and so kind of rethinking those inconsistencies and bringing in a Jewish perspective to say, hey, if we're going to read into <laughs> these scriptures, uh, they ought to come from its original context. Uh, but yeah, so that's, I think that's my biggest takeaway. What would you say was yours? Yeah, no, I, I think um, <clears throat> in the discussion, <clears throat> very clearly, it, it's so important that that we emphasize just the beauty and the authority of scripture. But I think that this discussion and analysis with Jacob about Sola Scriptura is a, it's a reminder uh, to me of just the, the importance that Although <clears throat> scripture is, is the word of God and there's, there's nothing like it, 
Um, we do need additional perspectives and traditions and customs to help us to walk out scripture. Personally, well, similar to, and I grew up in a, in a typical or traditional American Jewish, re- reformed Jewish home. But then when I became a follower of Yeshua, it was in a Baptist, so Protestant background mm-hmm. where sola scriptura was upheld. And I had, you know, like Jacob said, I learned to love the Bible and scripture. And I'm so grateful that that was grounded into me. But I also um, developed some reflexes and impulses just in, in that culture that were, I would say, a little bit negative towards, uh, sometimes negative towards um, traditional Jewish sources such as the Talmud or or the Midrash mm. or um, and maybe even some Christian uh, traditional Christian sources and to have some reluctance uh, and so I think that this discussion is important in in helping us to sort out uh, the the absolutely the the chief role of Scripture but also the need uh, for for us to access the ongoing dialogue that both. Jewish tradition and Christian tradition has in, all right, how do we walk these things out? Right, and to right. not to see those things as a threat uh, to, to scripture, but really as a necessary companion to, uh, to to walking out a life of faith according to the scriptures. Yeah, excellent. And I think the five, rethinking the five sole definitely does start that conversation yeah. and gives a lot of information to Protestants to consider their own foundational principles and and what that really looks like. So indeed, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I agree. Hey, Ruben, this has been a great first show. Um, I am looking forward to to lots of good, uh, good and meaningful discussions uh, with you and our guests. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yep. All right, Shalom, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on the Messiah Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. This podcast is an extension of Messiah Magazine available at messiahmagazine.org. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review along with a five-star rating wherever you're listening now. Today's podcast was hosted by myself, Ryan Lambert, along with Ruben Ramos. Our executive producer is Boaz Michael, and the editor-in-chief is Daniel Lancaster. This episode was directed and edited by Jeremy Schoenwald. Original music was written and performed by Joshua Aaron. And the show notes for Messiah and Podcast were edited by Candy Bishop and are available at messiahpodcast.org. If you're interested in learning more about the Bible from a Messianic Jewish perspective, check out Torah Club which is an international network of small study groups who meet weekly to study the Bible together from a Messianic Jewish perspective. To start a club or join a club, go to torahclub.org. Until next time, shalom. Let the waters cover the sea.